is Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these worked these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. What did you hope? It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we turn to this familiar, but very surprising, very counterintuitive parable. So before we turn to this text, let us come together before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how it surprises us, how the graciousness of your gospel confounds our assumptions and presuppositions. And Lord, I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this text and that you, through your spirit, Father, would apply these words to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the theologian William Cavanaugh, in his book, Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire, he makes an important point about the way that we understand economics. And I certainly don't mean to knock economics in any sense. It's an important and necessary study of our economy in the way that it actually exists. We need economists, and the church needs Christian economists. However, we live in a fallen world, and we do so as fallen people. So there exists economic conditions that fall below God's intended ideal for humanity. And so Kavanaugh writes, quote, Economics, we are told, is the science that studies the allocation of resources under the conditions of scarcity. Yet scarcity, which is the lack of some good, it doesn't speak to the actual quantity of the goods that are available. We could actually have more of something than we need, but it could still be in a state of scarcity because we want more and more and more of it. 
Having enough is not what determines scarcity. Rather, it's a matter of having as much as we want. We might have enough money or clothes or furniture or gadgets, but we still want more. It is our, de it is our desires that ultimately determine scarcity. It's a matter of supply and demand, of supply and desire, not of supply and sufficiency, not of supply and having enough. Scarcity, then, in an economic sense, is not ultimately a function of need, but a function of desire. As one article explains, one of the defining features of economics is scarcity, which deals with how people satisfy unlimited wants and needs with limited resources. So then what's the core of the problem here? Kavanaugh, drawing from the insights of Augustine, he points out that the problem is not desire in and of itself. Humans are creatures who naturally and rightly desire. Everything we do is because we desire. God made us as creatures who desire. The problem is that we don't desire rightly. And ironically, and perhaps counterintuitively, the problem is not that we desire too much, but too little. Kavanaugh writes, the problem is that our desires continue to light on objects that fail to satisfy. Or as C.S. Lewis famously puts it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. And yet, as Lewis himself attests, we are not pleased because such things cannot wholly please us. We might have all the money or food or romance or resources or professional success or notoriety that we could possibly imagine, and yet our desires still would not be satisfied. Our thirst would still not be quenched. We would keep on desiring. And so even in the greatest excess, even in the most gratuitous gluttony, we would still be suffering the sting of scarcity. Economics is a matter of supply and demand, and our desires will never stop demanding. That is, except in one instance, except when our endless desires meet their infinite match. Except when our desires seek out what they can never exhaust. So again, quote Kavanaugh, the solution to the restlessness of desire is to cultivate a desire for God, the eternal one in whom our hearts will find rest. Only God can bring an end to scarcity and only a kingdom built upon God can be a kingdom that operates on something other than the principle of scarcity. And this is exactly what the kingdom of God is and does. In today's passage, Jesus shows us what the kingdom of heaven is like by telling us a parable that undoes the tendency our tendency to see the world through the lens of scarcity. We find a kingdom instead that overflows with generosity. But this generosity, as we will see, rubs us the wrong way. This is not how things usually work. This is not the way that things are supposed to work. This isn't fair. 
And so what else can Christ say to us? All of us who flinch at the generosity of God, what else can Christ say but the words of the master in this parable? Do you begrudge my generosity? And so let's examine this parable under the two following headings, scarcity and generosity. Scarcity. At the most basic level, as Kavanaugh notes, if what we can touch and taste and smell is all that there is, then we cannot help but operate in a world of scarcity. Not only do we have a desire in our heart that outstretches any limited and finite good in creation, but the things that we buy and sell and work for by nature, they're lessened the more that we share them. The more people share some delicious meal or a spacious house or a professional honor, the less everyone has. Cutting more slices from the pizza makes everybody's slices smaller. Awarding more people a prestigious honor makes the honor less prestigious. This is the way of the truly good, but the lesser good things of this world. And being centered around these goods, the things that we buy and sell and work for, is a key aspect of what Augustine calls the city of man, in contrast to the city and kingdom of God. And we have to be careful here. The city of man is not without its good. Augustine tells us that it brings along with it a sort of earthly peace by which humans don't live in violence, might not live in violence with one another. In this piece, we're enabled to pursue the good gifts of God, the everyday amenities of human life, things that are very important, things like food and shelter and the like. These are good things. Again, such goods are what the city of man is organized around, and these lesser goods are still very much goods. And to be sure, the Christians should work to ensure that everyone that others have the lesser goods that they need just because cutting more slices from the pizza means smaller slices that doesn't mean that we should do just this in the love of our neighbor far from it the more such things are shared yes the less everyone has but this is why love in this world so often takes the form of sacrifice this is still something that we're called to do but as Augustine points out, these lesser goods cannot hold a people together. They fall apart. They don't last forever, even in especially our houses. Maybe our longest lasting purchases, they continually fall apart and they need constant and constant and constant maintenance. The goods of this world are subject to famine, weather and drought and climate conditions and unsustainable farming practices all of these work together to put our food supply in fragility. None of this offers any long-standing security. And there are countless historical examples of extreme inflation destroying fortunes. There's no reason to think that something like that could not happen to us. And again, most basically, there are only ever a limited supply of the things that we can buy and sell and work for. And what determines scarcity is not our needs, but our unlimited desire and demands. And so, 
You have certain people working to get this limited supply of good at the expense of others. As Augustine warns, the goods, the things we buy and sell and work for, the kind that often set people against each other, he warns us about the city of man. He says, since its good is not in the sort of good that brings no anxieties to those who have it, the earthly city is often divided against itself by lawsuits, wars, and conflicts. The overall point here is that if all that we have are the goods we buy and sell and work for, if all that we can have is what we can see and taste and touch and smell, then society will always be in a state of scarcity. It's always going to shake out into the haves and the have-nots. Again, there are limited finite goods for unlimited wants. And the supreme irony is that even the haves, they won't have all that they desire. Even the wealthiest will still exist in a perpetual state of scarcity. The irony is that no matter what you have, you will existentially operate as a have-not. Just think of the rich and famous celebrity who has more than most could ever dream of. How many such persons would you describe as satisfying, as peaceful, as content? Having ever more goods of this world can only beget more voracious desire. This is the same dynamic as when we try to quench our thirst by salt water. We're thirsty, but the more that we drink, the thirstier and thirstier and thirstier we become. And it's into this perpetual economic situation, the situation of the fallen human, that Jesus speaks this parable. And this is surprising. Jesus presents the kingdom of God in the imagery of a master, a kind of manager, and his workers. He presents the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, through a relationship that frames the economic systems that we all know. And in so doing, Jesus sets out to undo the way that we carry these assumptions into the kingdom of God. Contrary to our assumptions, the kingdom of God does not operate by way of the economics of this world. And if this is the case, then Jesus must be presenting us with a good that cannot exist in a state of scarcity, a good that cannot be exhausted by our unlimited desires, a good that cannot be diminished by sharing, a good that actually grows as we share it with our neighbor. It must be a good of an entirely different kind. Only then could the kingdom of God be a kingdom without scarcity. And this is exactly what we find. What happens in this parable? Well, a manager, a master of a house, goes out to recruit several rounds of workers to tend his vineyard. And the master is not a stingy master. The first group who worked the whole day was promised a denarius for their labor. As one commentator writes, in our Lord's time, a denarius's value was a generous day's pay. The first group readily agrees to this payment and they begin to work in the vineyard. The master then does this several more times throughout the day. Finding those who are idle in the marketplace, he promises to pay them whatever is right for their work. In fact, the word here translated as right is the Greek word for righteousness, dikaios. 
reminding us that righteousness is a matter of properly fulfilling our relational obligations, not just to God, but also to our neighbor. Human righteousness is being properly human before God with neighbor in the world. And of course, one direct implication of this is that Christians, especially Christian business owners, should do all that they can to ensure that workers receive a righteous or a proper wage. In addition, if this were a real vineyard, we would all do well to buy its products based on the way that the master treats his servants. However, as we will see, the righteousness of the manager with its exorbitant generosity is actually best understood as showing us the very righteousness of God. As one commentator notes, this promise to pay a dikaios wage, quote, introduces the dramatic tension of the story. What will the righteous wage of the master be? That's the question. And this is where the whole parable finds its hinge. Again, the master recruits new groups of workers several times. And in fact, the last group will only work one hour, while the implication is that the first group worked 12 hours. Yet Christ tells us the last will be first and the first last. And those who only worked one hour receive a righteous wage first. They are given a whole denarius, the generous payment of one day's work. Yet the first group of workers, they witness this, and we read, Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? What is the mentality that we find here? This is the mentality of scarcity. Scarcity assumes that what is worked for, what is purchased and won and earned and merited is either mine or yours. Scarcity assumes that all things function like the goods that we buy and sell and work for. If they have more, then we have less. And since we worked more, we should have more and they should have less. This, we assume, is the wage of righteousness. We assume righteousness works like any other good we buy and sell and work for. And so scarcity is always eyeing our neighbor. What about him? What about her? How much did they get? And it's important to remember what ultimately provokes Jesus' telling of this parable. As commentator Frederick Bruner notes, the parable is Jesus' final way of responding to Peter's claim and question in chapter 19. Look, we left everything and followed you. So what will we get? Jesus was at first surprisingly kind in telling Peter and the other disciples that their sacrifices would be wonderfully rewarded. But Jesus now augments his kind promise with a kind warning. Pride in your sacrifices, if it leads you to look down on others, can lead to an awful judgment. Peter's question was in last week's passage. And here in today's passage, Jesus is still answering Peter's 
Query. Again, this is the same Peter who, when told what kind of death he would die by the resurrected Christ in John 21, which was very hard news to be sure, immediately looks over his shoulder at the Apostle John and asks, Lord, what about this man? Yet Jesus responds, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is the scarcity mentality. It's always looking over our shoulder at our neighbor and asking, what about them? What about them? What about them? Why me? I've done this and this and this and this and that. But what have they done? If they have been given this blessing or that gift, this job or that position, this professional success or that romance, this level of wealth or that level of comfort, these children or that family, this physical beauty or that bodily health, these skills or those competencies, this web of influence or that notoriety, this fulfillment of their ambition or their achievement of their plans, then Lord, what about me? What does this say? Lord, look how much longer I've worked for you. Lord, look how much more I've done for you. Lord, look at how much I pray and study your word and help at church and share my faith and serve my family and friends. Lord, look at how much I've given up for you. Lord, look at how often they fail. Lord, look at how they spend their money. Lord, look at how they raise their kids. Lord, look at how carelessly they speak. Lord, look at how little they care about your ways. Lord, look at all the ways they've only worked one measly hour compared to the 12 hours that I've spent laboring for you under this hot, scorching sun. Lord, it isn't fair. Lord, it isn't right. Lord, it isn't righteous. And we all fall into this trap. We are all Peter. And no matter where we are in our Christian walk, we can always find someone in our hearts, fellow Christians, whom we judge to have only worked one hour compared to our 12. We are experts at sliding scales. We are experts at grading on a curve. And this is spiritual scarcity. And spiritual scarcity is just another way to say pride. And these laborers who worked all day are in very great danger of the spiritual scarcity of pride. As C.S. Lewis warns, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. That is, by pride. The devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided, all the time, he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Remember that Jesus is telling this parable as a warning to the disciples. Yes, you have given up much. And to be sure, they will give up much more than most Christians in the history of the church. This is admirable, noble, exemplary. Their lives, the lives of the disciples, should move and motivate us and give us encouragement. 
But the danger is to think that because of this, they deserve more than those who have only clocked in one hour compared to their labor. Their labor all day long under the scorching heat of weariness and trial and persecution. Again, this kingdom is not built upon the give and take economics of the city of man. It's not built upon the scarcity of me over you. The lives of the disciples are important accounts for the church. We must learn to let their stories strengthen our own faith. Let us never cease to wonder that a couple of fishermen and a few others from the fringe of society, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changed the world and the entire course of history. That is an uncontroversial statement, and it is absolutely amazing. However, they and we must never ask Peter's question. Lord, what about this man? This is the pride of thinking that I have done more than you. I deserve more than you. I have conquered sin more than you. I have poured out myself more fully than you. Yes, unlike the common fair-weather Christian, I have defeated lust. I never lose my cool. I am simply more sanctified, more like Christ than you will ever be in this life. Therefore, if they receive a denarius, just think how much I'll receive. But Jesus warns us, you are drowning. We are drowning in a sea of pride. And so how does this parable cure us? How do we learn like Paul? Perhaps the one person who, if these boasts were actually legitimate, perhaps he could actually make them. How do we learn to say like Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this brings us to our second and final point, generosity. How do we begin to combat pride? Well, Lewis helps orient us here. He writes, the first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step it is too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. What's our first step? Well, it's to recognize ourselves in that first group who complains about the wage. And the more we fail to recognize ourselves in that group, the more that we are that group. And this is to recognize that we are trying to impose the scarcity mentality on to the kingdom of God. But just as a circle cannot be a square, so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has no place for scarcity. This is because the kingdom of heaven is not centered upon or founded upon the goods that the city of man is founded upon. The good that founds the kingdom of heaven is God himself, the one infinite good who can never be exhausted by our endless desire. The one infinite good who is not lessened as we share him with our neighbor. The one infinite good who we actually come to know and love and enjoy more fully as we share him with our neighbor. The one infinite good who cannot be lost or taken away. The one infinite good who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. The one infinite good who is a fount of cold, sweet refreshment in a world of salt water. 
The eternal life of knowing and loving God in a completely restored creation of this is the denarius that we work for. If God, the very greatest good, is the one who established the kingdom of heaven, then there is no place for scarcity. The goods that we buy and sell and work for, they cannot be shared in this way. Again, the more money you share, the less you have. The more food you share, the less you have. The more space in your house that you share, the less you have. The more names that appear on your grant, the less notoriety you have. The more co-authors that appear on your published paper, the less prestige you have. The more colleagues you join with, the less commission you have. The more notes that you share for that class that grades on the curve, the less A's you have. Sharing with others means less for you. And again, what we want is more and more and more and more. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's never enough. Do yourself a favor and actually sit down and talk with someone who has the very thing that you most want. And I guarantee that their reality is much, much different than you think it is. And again, when this scarcity becomes spiritual, it becomes pride. However, God is not like any of these other goods. He's the greatest good, the infinite good. As Augustine famously tells us, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Do you truly believe this? Do you truly believe that all of your deepest longings will be met in God? Do you truly believe that you can enjoy God in part now and one day in full? Do you truly believe that this worm of desire that eats away at us in this life really does find more than its match in God? If not, then you are in a place of spiritual scarcity. If not, pride is poisoning you. Do you truly believe that the more you share the joy of God with others, the more you yourself will experience this joy? Do you truly long for others to receive the righteous wage who is God? Do you truly delight when others come to faith in him? Do you truly weep in your soul for those who reject this great gift of God? If not, then you are in a place of spiritual scarcity. Do you truly believe that if your spiritual life has become lukewarm, that if you've placed your pursuit of God behind the lesser goods of romance or career or resources or success or academics or money, then you are the spiritual equivalent of those standing idle in the marketplace? Do you truly believe that you have a responsibility to grow others in their knowledge and love of God? Do you truly rejoice in the faith of others, others in this church? And do you work to grow and to nurture their faith, especially the youngest in our midst? Do you rejoice when others receive the great gift of God's wage? If not, then you are in a place, we are in a place of spiritual scarcity. Again, God is a wholly different kind of good. But this goes deeper, because God is also received in a wholly different kind of way. Remember the master's promise. Go into the vineyard, and whatever is righteous, I will give you. What is the righteousness of the master? The righteousness of God. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3 
He declares that the righteousness of God has been manifested in Christ Jesus. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, recall that righteousness involves right relations. For the humans, this means right relations to God and to neighbor and to creation. However, we in our pride, in our spiritual scarcity, we have turned away from God. The whole logic of sin is loving and desiring some good thing in creation more than God, the creator himself. And so sin is turning from the riches of God to the finite and limited meager portions offered by lesser goods. It is to turn away from a flowing river to a parched desert, to turn away from a lavished feast to crumbs upon the floor. It's to turn away from infinite abundance to absolute certain scarcity. The logic of sin is scarcity trying to satisfy an unlimited desire with a limited good. But we all do it again and again and again, and this is our unrighteousness. In turning from God to lesser goods, we seek the things that we can buy and sell and work for at the expense of our neighbor. It is us versus them. The more that they have, the less that we have, so we better keep fighting. Spiritual scarcity puts us in competition with God and neighbor, even creation. It is unrighteousness in all of our relationships. But again, the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus Christ. How is this so? Well, Jesus Christ shows us the lengths that God will go to to bring back the human into right relationship with himself, into right relation with neighbors, and right relation with creation. We have all been unrighteous. And so the righteousness of God demands that we receive the just penalty of this unrighteousness. In Christ, God became human and took this penalty upon the cross. And we, as humans, are called to righteousness, the relationality that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And in God, this righteousness has been provided in Christ. In Christ, God became human and lived this life of righteous relationality on our behalf. God is so righteous that he will go to the very greatest lengths to maintain our righteousness to him. This is the very righteousness of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Just as the master in the parable tells the workers, so too does God say to us, whatever is righteous, I will give you. Or perhaps better put, whoever is righteous, he I will give you. For God has given us Christ Jesus, the righteous one. He is the denarius given to all those with faith in him. And he is pure gift, a dynamic illustrated by the fact that all who listen to the call of the master, they are all given the very same reward. It's not the length of the work that merits the reward. Again, it is Christ who earns us righteousness, not us. And so all in Christ are given the same infinite and eternal good, reconciliation and a restored relationship with God himself. But we, like the workers, we must heed the call. We must go into the vineyard. We must identify ourselves with God, the master, under the banner of Christ Jesus. 
We must listen to and trust and rely upon the promise of the master that he will give us what is righteous, that he will give us all that is promised in Christ Jesus. This is the generosity of the kingdom of heaven. This is the good gift of God that is God himself. So my friends, if you are in Christ, you will miss out on nothing. No true joy will ever escape you. Please, please rest in this wonderful truth. We simply have to receive the good gift of Christ by faith. And if it seems too good to be true, we are still bringing our assumptions of scarcity into the kingdom of God. How much of our own spiritual doubt and despair and sadness and pride is because we're treating the kingdom of God like our job, like some 401k, like our resume, like our GPA, rather than the free gift of God. And so rest. Don't be restless to enjoy all the goods and experience of this world. Don't hold them tight at your neighbor's expense. And if we have received the one good that alone can fulfill the deepest desires of our heart, then we should certainly be generous with the lesser goods that we have, sharing and sacrificing for the good of our neighbor. Yes, when we share food or money or resources or time or influence or space, then yes, we will have less of all of these things, but loving our neighbor is precisely what these things are for. And the more we give, the more of God we will receive. God gives all of himself to us, but we limit our receiving of God by the hardness of our heart. But to love our neighbor and to share with them the diminishing goods of this world is to open our hearts more to God and to receive God himself more fully. Upon our deathbed, our deepest regrets will not be what we didn't get, but what we didn't give. What can undo the spiritual scarcity of pride? Only the divine generosity that is Christ Jesus, the very generosity of the one who is the righteousness of God. Do you begrudge my generosity? May it never be, Lord. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we need not operate with scarcity, but, Lord, that you have given yourself in abundance to us. Lord, we thank you for the gift that you are. We thank you for Christ Jesus who reconciles us to you. We thank you, Lord, that the kingdom of heaven operates on the logic of free gift. Help us to trust and to rest and to receive this wonderful gift more fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.